Hey, Grace Church. It's uh, great to be with you again. Uh, my name's Pastor Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the Norton campus. Um, <clears throat> just this week, I was looking through my email, and I, I think we've all come across advertisements that proclaim, this is must-have. Um, and I wondered, what are some of the things that, that we must have in 2023? Uh, and actually, the results were pretty enlightening. Uh, some of the must-have thing, must things I found were, number one, uh, the Wonder Whisk. Uh, must-have, world's fastest handheld whisk, uh, because you can never whisk fast enough. Uh, a second thing was the, the Mold Magic Extreme, uh, which promises to banish mold from your house and, and sounds a lot like bleach. Uh, another must-have, according to Amazon, is was something called um, butt-lifting yoga pants. Uh, who knew? Who knew? Uh, there were there were hundreds of things that we must have. But I thought this was fascinating. I think even though I, I don't have a beard, I must have it. It's called the beard bib. Now, I want you, yeah, little suction cups here and. Yeah, I want you to imagine pulling this bad boy out at the cabin with the guys. Uh, yeah, we all we, we all must have the beard bib. Uh, but but must-haves extend beyond this world of advertising. Um, <clears throat> people have must-haves about other people. Employers have a must-have list for potential employees. Coaches have a must-have uh, stats for their recruits. Graduates must have lists for potential jobs. And then there's the must-have lists that come from the world of dating. But unlike, the, unlike these things and the products I've talked about, must-haves are essentials. Must-haves are, are non-negotiable. Must-haves are fundamental necessities. In fact, I think one could say as we're walking through these I am statements of Jesus, our relationship with Jesus is must-have, essential, non-negotiable. And so today I want to keep pounding that drum. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus claims to be God in the flesh, taking the I am name of Yahweh, God, for himself, applying it very specifically and relationally to our greatest need. To those who are spiritually hungry, he says, hungry, he says I am the bread of life. To those who are spiritually thirsty, he says, I am the living water. To those in spiritual darkness, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. To those who feel abandoned, I am the good shepherd. And to those who feel lost, I am the way. To those who are confused, I am the truth. To those who are afraid of death, I am the life. This is what Jesus wants to be to us. To the empty, he says, I'll be your fullness. To the dead, he says, I'll be your resurrection and life. To the defeated, he says, I'll be your hope. For all that we need, all that we lack, all that we could never be in ourselves, Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is the must-have answer to our lives. To me, this, this sounds arrogant, narrow-minded, maybe even a little naive. But those who believe we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, this is truth. Jesus says it this way, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me.
And again, this can sound arrogant, narrow-minded, and unfortunately, many Christians can come across as arrogant and narrow-minded, self-righteous, even judgmental. But we confess the truth of Jesus' supremacy and exclusivity, not not to be smug or arrogant or narrow-minded, but because we believe Jesus is who he says he is. He's unique, standing alone as the only one who has defeated death and given us life. That being said, an old preacher once said, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. And I'm going to do my best today to to make sure there's no mist up here. Um, If you'll make sure there's no fog out there. Uh, You may be here this morning and and you may not agree with these statements. Uh, Jesus is the only way that you may not embrace his claims to be fully God, fully man. You may believe that Jesus is one of but many ways to find peace in your life. If that's you, I'd, I'd love if you wouldn't, you wouldn't shut down or shut me out, but listen to what Jesus says about himself. It's a, it's a tough truth, but it's also gracious good news. Here's one, one reason all this matters. The more we understand who Jesus is today, the more we'll live with hope every day. And so if you would, turn with me to, to John chapter 14. I, I want to look at some of the context of Jesus' exclusive statement here. You see, at, at the time, Jesus' public ministry is over. He, he has nothing more to say to the masses of people who were once intrigued with him. For the most part, they've, they've rejected him. They've left because they, he wasn't what they thought they needed. So he came into his own, but his own did not receive him. And the door, the door of the, the upper room is shut. And behind this door is, is a small group of 13 men, Jesus and his 12. Because it's a Passover, it's a time of celebration. It's a time of remembrance. But Jesus has shared some things with his men that make them uncomfortable. They're nervous. Jesus has predicted he will be betrayed by one of them. And then he breaks off a piece of bread and gives it to Judas Iscariot. The Lord has also announced that he's leaving them and and they can't follow him. These are men who had left their jobs and families to follow Jesus in hope that he was the promised Messiah, their deliverer from Roman oppression. But now he's talking about his death. He's talking about leaving them. And to top it off, he just told Peter that before daybreak, Peter would deny him three times. As you can imagine, these men, they were anxious. They were were troubled, um, probably a little scared. And so the Lord's Lord's emphasis in, in all of John 14 is to comfort and strengthen their troubled, anxious hearts especially in light of his brutal execution the next day. And so we come to chapter 14, verse 1. In the midst of all these hard realities, Jesus offers us peace. Verse 1, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And he starts with this command, don't be troubled. Stop being stressed out. Don't be anxious. But he doesn't end there. With the command comes the capability to keep the command. And so he says, you can stop being troubled because of who you know. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. You trust God, trust also in me. It's another claim to be God. He's saying something like this. You trust in God who is invisible, and and that's great. Now it's time to trust in me, even though I'll be leaving for a while. I like how one pastor paraphrases this. He says, don't be distressed that I'm going away and that you cannot come with me right now. You believe in God, don't you? Can you see him? Does he have a physical body that you can see and touch? No. I'm going away and and you will not be able to see me as you have these last three years. I challenge you, therefore, to believe in me in in, in the same way that you believe in God the Father today as your unseen Lord. I will be just as real in my absence as I have ever been while living with you. You see, the disciples are in the danger of a temptation as old as the Garden of Eden. From the very beginning, people have been tempted to rely more on what they can see than on what God has said. And so Jesus is saying, stop being anxious. Trust me. Trust who I am. Trust what I say. Because because of who you know, Jesus, the I am, you can have peace. But he doesn't end there. See, Jesus is also preparing a place for us. Verse 2 says, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? As Jesus is talking to them about heaven, he's talking about eternity. And it's interesting, sometimes heaven is called a country because of our citizenship and, and just the vastness of it. Sometimes heaven is called a city because of its inhabitants. Sometimes it's called a kingdom because of its rule and order. Sometimes it's called a paradise because of its beauty. Sometimes it's called a house because it's family. Jesus calls it the Father's house. And Jesus invites us to join him someday in the Father's house. Now, because of poor translations, our imaginations, and I I might say a few gospel songs, we've gotten this notion that we're all getting our own mansions just over the hilltop. Uh, I don't believe that's what Jesus is describing here. It's hard for us to imagine, but in Jesus's culture, when your kids grew up and they started having, they got married and they had kids, you know what they did? They, they just added on to the family tent. They added a room. They just kept adding rooms. And so in the Middle East, you'd see these sprawling tents that are divided into many rooms. And with that in mind, Jesus is saying, in my father's house, there's room for you. In fact, there's many rooms. Jesus is being inclusive. He wants as many who will come to come because there's room. But more than giving us a blueprint of what heaven will be like, Jesus speaks even more relationally. He says it's, it's his father's house and there's room for those who say yes to Jesus, who put their faith and trust in him. In other words, heaven is like going home. It's not like traveling to a foreign country where you don't know anyone, you can't speak the language, you're unfamiliar with the culture. No, it's home. It's like going to a familiar, comfortable place where you're welcomed by a father who loves you and brothers and sisters who know you. Those who follow Jesus have a confirmed reservation, a room in the father's house. 
Jesus completed this at the cross, affirmed it with the resurrection, and is now waiting for the proper time to bring us home. You know, I think it's interesting to think about Jesus has prepared a room for us, though when he came, there was no room for him. Despite the fact that this world rejected him, Jesus said there's a place for those who believe in his father's house. Not only that, Jesus offers us peace and a place. Jesus gives us a promise. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus is saying, I'm not just going to show you the way to the place that I've prepared, like three aisles down and to the left. Now he says, I, I promise to come back and take you <clears throat> to that place so that we can be together forever. Then you'll finally be home. Jesus reinforces this promise later in the same chapter, verse 18, when he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. See, ever since Jesus spoke these words, the church has been waiting for his return. And the truth is, he could come at any moment. He could come before the end of this message. Jesus promises to come back for us, to re reunite us as family in his father's house. This is why he can command them not to be troubled by their own current anxieties and future troubles. But Jesus continues in verse 4, he says, You know the way to the place where I'm going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? You know, Thomas is a kid in school who, who sticks his hand up and is willing to say, I have no clue what you just said. Where are you going? See, Thomas is probably still waiting for an answer to Peter's earlier question in chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Now, Jesus tells them about a place he's going, a, a place prepared for them, a, a place he'll take them. And then he says, you know the place. <laughs> and in a moment of pure honesty, Thomas blurts out, Lord, uh, we don't. <laughs> and I'm so glad that, that he spoke up because he opened the door for Jesus to give the answer, which is the good news in a nutshell. Again, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus is whom we need exclusively. The three articles, the way, the truth, the life, imply the exclusivity of Jesus' claims. He's not just a way, a truth, a life. He doesn't just point out the way, proclaim a truth, and exemplify life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. And if that wasn't enough, he follows it with, no one comes to the Father except through me. So what Jesus is really saying is, I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only life that will bring you peace with God and give you the life you were created to have in his presence forever. Let's look at what Jesus is saying through each of these statements. He says, I am the way. I believe Jesus is telling them the way to heaven is, is not a religious system or a set of spiritual teachings to follow. The way can't be found in you or, or your sincere efforts. 
It's not found in philosophy or education. Jesus is saying, the way is me. You know the way to where I'm going because it's me. I am the way. Now, here's where it gets a a little interesting. People today don't have a problem if you say Jesus is a way to God or that you personally believe in him as long as you don't say Jesus is the only way. But when you claim that Jesus is the exclusive way to God, he alone can give eternal life, you're labeled intolerant and arrogant. But one writer points out that the notion that all religions are valid is logically logically impossible. Listen closely. Because if all religions are valid, then Christianity is valid. But if Jesus said he's the only way to God, that eliminates all the other ways. So he, either he was right or he was wrong. R.C. Sproul concludes, if, if Jesus was wrong, then Christianity has no validity at all. If he was right, then there is no other way. You see, denying that Jesus is the only way, religious pluralism would say that there are many ways In fact, a a common analogy a pluralist will use is all roads lead to the top of the mountain. In other words, any path will ultimately lead to God or happiness or or whatever you're looking for. But contrary to that belief, Proverbs 14.12 says it this way, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We know that conflicting ideas can't be true at the same time. So the conclusion is that while you may think all paths lead to the same place, the reality is each belief system has its own set of signs that point to radically different destinations. Instead of a mountain with many paths, it would be better to describe the search for spiritual truth as a maze. One path makes it through to truth while all the others lead to dead ends. And Jesus is saying, I'm the answer to the maze. The one path that makes it through. He says, if you want to be reconciled with a holy God, if you want to cross the chasm of sin that separates us, if you want to go where I'm going, I am your bridge. I am the way. An explorer hired a a guide to take him him across a a vast desert. They arrived at the edge of the desert. All the explorers saw before him were miles and miles of, of just endless sand and dunes. Not a single footprint, not a single path of any kind. And so a little worried, he asked the guide, like, hey, where's the road? And the guide simply replied, I am the road. You see, in a similar way, Jesus says, I am the way. Jesus is the way to the Father's house. He's the way to God. We have to trust him to take us there. And this this understanding of Jesus being the way was so central to the understanding of the early church that believers were known as being a part of the way. It's one of the earliest names given to the Christian community used at least six times in in the book of Acts. And I think it's a great description of the culture of discipleship they had. Follow me as I follow Jesus. They followed the way of Jesus. They wanted their lives to reflect the way. 
You see, to, to enjoy the life of Jesus, we have to follow the lifestyle, the way of Jesus. And so sometimes we get discouraged, we get frustrated with our faith, but often it's because we're trying our own way, not following the way. So Jesus says, I am the way. He also says, I am the truth. Again, he didn't say, I can teach you the, the truth, although he, he did that. He said, I am the truth. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, he means, trust me in this. Count on what I'm saying to you. I am about to, to pay for your forgiveness with my life. I can't love you more than I do. And, and, and what I'm about to do on the cross is all that's needed to build this bridge you cross it by believing in me, trusting that, that what I've done for you is all you'll ever need to be right with God. There's a lot of people out there that will tell you uh, that they know the truth, but I'm not giving you truth. I am the truth. You can trust me. Wow, we, we really need truth because without it, we lose our bearing. I think the description of God's people in Isaiah 59 is, is one we could use for today as well. Verse 14 says, So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. See, we're struggling because truth has stumbled in the streets. We can't discern what's right, what's true, from what's a lie, a deception. And when we don't have truth, there's no direction. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And, and we see how that worked out in, in the book of Judges, not well. But when we know what is true, we know what choices to make. We can apply wisdom. We have a direction. And Jesus is saying, I am the direction you need. I am the truth. Well, some will argue that you can't know the truth or that truth is, is relative. And combating the fact that Jesus is so exclusive in his claims, again, the, the pluralist or the one who argues that all religions, religions lead to the same truth, the same God, will argue that all religions are experiencing the same spiritual reality, just in different ways. And then again, you may have heard the analogy, three blind men encounter an elephant for the first time and each feels a different part of the elephant and attempts to determine truth about the elephant. The first, first man comes to, to a leg and he's like, oh, this, this is a tree trunk or a, a, or a living pillar. Another grabs the tail and says, oh, this is a rope. Another touches the, the trunk of the elephant and says, oh, this is, this is like a snake. And though each one experiences a part of the reality. None of them comprehends the whole complete animal. In other words, no one is able to grasp the whole of who God really is. So the pluralist would say that each religion in the world holds onto some aspect of truth, like a trunk, a rope, or a snake, that eventually leads them all to the same God or place of fulfillment or whatever. However, Christianity is inseparably, inseparably linked with the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. God who became flesh and dwelt among us, who died and rose again on the third day. With this in mind, one theologian remarks, if the analogy of the elephant were to reflect historic Christianity, 
one would find the elephant healing the men's blindness and personally introducing himself. Because the Christian's claim is that God is personally, intimately, uniquely, decisively revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The truth is a person. It's Jesus. And this is a fundamental difference between Christianity and other, other religions, other ways. And so Jesus, as we continue, he says, he's the way, the truth. And then he says, I am the life. And just as spiritual death leads to a separation from God, so life implies relationship with him. We're dead without him. We become alive when we surrender ourselves to him, embracing the life that we have in him. Albert Moeller uh, writes, if, if all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, the, the Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, then, all tr then any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, Mohammed or, or, or Joseph Smith will do. But if we need a savior, one who gives life, only Jesus will do. That seems like a narrow way of thinking. But Jesus himself is narrow when he says in Matthew chapter 7, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. See, these, these passages are extremely exclusive and overwhelmingly clear. Jesus is the only way to the Father's house. The claims, the claims of Jesus can seem outrageous. In fact, uh, G.K. Chesterton called them the wild truth. So how can Jesus be so exclusive? I want to close by giving five statements about Jesus that confirm he is the way, the truth, and the life, that there's no other way but through him. The first is this, Jesus is the only God-man. He's unlike any other teacher or prophet. He's God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. This then tells us something incredible about God. God understands us. He understands our condition. He knows what we go through. The fact that he became man in the person of Jesus Christ tells us he deeply cares for us. He had a real body. He had real feelings. He had, he had parents. He experienced real pain. He faced real hardship. He didn't live a human life from a distance. He drew close. He moved into our neighborhood and became one of us. God has come close to us in the person of Jesus, and there's no other God like this. Only Jesus is fully God, fully man. Because he's both, full, both God and man, he knows us. He has the power to keep his promises. A second statement is this. Only Jesus led a perfect human life. Jesus led a sinless life. He didn't gossip. He, he, gossip. he, he wasn't greedy. He didn't, he didn't cheat or deceive or take advantage of people. Jesus was without sin. Therefore, only Jesus can deal with our sin. Again, Chesterton, Chesterton said, sin is the only theological concept that can be 100% proven. Just look around. 
You see, no matter how hard we try, no matter how many good deeds we do, no matter how much we try to modify our behavior, we can't fix our sinful hearts on our own. We're part of the problem. And on our own, we're, we're stuck. Only Jesus led a sinless life. Only Jesus is able to take away our guilt. Only Jesus could take our sin and nail it to the cross. Only Jesus has dealt with what truly separates us from God. Another statement is only Jesus has conquered death. And it's interesting, if you go back to the time of the first century, Jesus wasn't the only person whom people believed could be the Messiah. In fact, scholars think there may have been five or six Messiah candidates who lived within a hundred years of Jesus' life. There were certain patterns to these Messiah candidates. They, they all called people to deepen their practice of faith. They all believed God would restore Israel's freedom. But what happened to all of these so-called Messiah candidates? They died. <laughs> they were killed by, by their opposition. And I want you to think about this. If your Messiah is killed, you only have one option. Go find yourself a new and better Messiah because following a dead Messiah meant, man, I'm, I'm following the wrong one. So when Jesus, the one who many believe was the true Messiah, was arrested, arrested uh, convicted, executed, buried. What do you think his followers thought? If he's not the Messiah, it doesn't matter that he modeled great compassion and sacrifice. When Jesus died, his disciples fled and hid. They were devastated. They lost their friend. They lost their hope. But then something remarkable happened. The same people who watched Jesus die began to gather again, but they didn't gather the tell old stories. They had experienced the risen and living Lord Jesus. And as a result, they left their occupation, sold their possessions, devoted the rest of their lives, many giving their lives to one simple message. Jesus died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and on the third day was raised to life. Why? Because he alone conquered death. He's not like the dead messiahs that came and went. He's the one and only resurrected messiah. Jesus is far different from any other religious leaders in history. Only Jesus could conquer death. Another statement, only Jesus is Lord. When we were kids, when we found a, just a big pile of dirt, we'd play king of the mountain. Um, you know, you stand at the top of the mound and the others would come up, try to push you off. And if they push you off, then they became king of the mountain. But there could only ever be one king of the mountain. The same is true of Lord. When Jesus walked out of the grave, they called him Lord Jesus. As after the resurrection, Jesus' followers no longer simply addressed him as Jesus. They called him Lord Jesus. And it wasn't just a term of respect. See, the Jews worship the one true God, Yahweh. And the Greek word they used to translate, translate Yahweh, the name of God, was the word kurios, which means Lord. And because they reserved all their worship for the one true God, Yahweh, it meant there could be only one person who could be called Lord or, or kurios. Only the I am, Yahweh, could be called Lord. Acts 4 says, 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul addresses Jesus as Lord all through his letters. See, built into this one word, the claim that Jesus is the one true God, he is Lord, he is Yahweh. And when these early Christians called him Lord, it wasn't just a doctrinal statement. It was, a, it was a statement about how they were going to live their lives. They weren't just calling him God. They were giving him authority over their lives because they knew that only Jesus has the power to heal the nations. Only Jesus has the power to restore marriages. Only Jesus has the power to transform lives. Only Jesus has the power to renew us from our brokenness. And see, we all serve something as Lord. And sometimes we trust Jesus with, we struggle to trust Jesus with what matters most to us. And, and sure, I, I can come and worship on Sunday and, and I can participate in different church activities, but do I give him full control of my life? Do I give him full control of my relationships, my ambitions, my dreams? Only Jesus can be trusted as Lord. Finally, only Jesus can give you a relationship with God. Only Jesus offers us a relationship with a loving God. Embedded in every other religion or way of life is some way of finding God or, or Godhood. But Jesus isn't just your way to find God. He is God who has come to find you. Jesus finds us in dark, messy places. He finds us in places filled with sin and shame and regret. But Jesus is the one who says, is, is the one God who says, I love you. I want to take the mess from you, cover your shame, forgive your guilt, overcome your fear. That's why he endured the cross and he gave his life for us. There's only one way to the Father. Without Jesus, there's no redemptive truth, no everlasting life, no way to the Father. You see, what you believe about Jesus matters. It matters in a world where, where we're often troubled, we're often anxious. But believing that Jesus is the way will comfort your troubled heart because you have access to the gracious Father through him. He is the way to the Father's house. He is the way home. In an ever-shifting, uncertain world, believing that Jesus is the truth brings confidence and direction. You can stand securely in the truth of who Jesus is. Believing Jesus is the life gives, gives life and gives the certainty of a forever home with him. Now, as I was reminded and uh, went back to the message on the bread of life from a few weeks ago, and just so to remind you, after the crowds were following him, abandoned Jesus, Jesus turns to his followers and he asks, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter answers, Lord, to, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter understood, Jesus, you are the way. Jesus, you are the truth. Jesus, you are the only life. And the question is, what are you going to do with him? I know for me, <laughs> I must have Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. 
that you didn't leave us wondering about how to have peace with God. You didn't leave us wondering how to have access to you and talk to you and spend eternity with you. The Father, you gave us Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life to direct us, to give us hope, Lord, that our lives might be transformed by your grace. Father, I pray that we would know Jesus as Lord in our lives and that we would live accordingly. That, Lord, that you would have authority over our decisions and the direction, the trajectory of our lives. Lord, we want to give our lives to you that we might, we might know you as you really are. That, Lord, when the troubles come and we feel the anxiousness of this world, Lord, we know we have a God who holds us a God who loves us. Father, we thank you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys take care.